From WGBH News, I'm Adam Riley, and this is The Scrum. And I'm sitting in a booth with Peter Kadzis and David Bernstein at the Banshee, which as some listeners will know is a bar of some repute here in Dorchester. I believe that recently uh, the Vice President of the United States was here uh, as part of the, uh, the series of celebrity uh, appearances for Martha Coakley. Not to segue right into our topics for today, but... Yeah, the, the, the Banshee is more new Boston for me. I, I was, um, while the Erie Pub wasn't my stomping grounds, that was where we would end up, especially okay. after Wakes. All right, let's talk, uh, since David has given us the opportunity to get off our pub crawl thing and go into the, the governor's race. David, as you mentioned, neither Joe Biden nor Michelle Obama nor Hillary Clinton. Um, who else? Bill who, Clinton. Bill Clinton, right? Uh, all these high-profile surrogates, Deval Patrick, a rather gifted campaigner, uh, couldn't get the job done for Martha Coakley or couldn't put Martha Coakley over the top. What is your reaction, David, first, to last night's narrow win by Charlie Baker? Well, I, I give Charlie Baker a lot of credit. I think that he had to run a nearly flawless campaign, and he did. He had to learn and incorporate lessons uh, do a lot of self-analysis and analysis of the of his campaign, and you know apply those lessons the way he would to a business. Uh, and I think he did. He learned to stop listening to certain people who had certain ideas of how a Republican wins in Massachusetts, and start listening to other people, including Will Kaiser, a longtime Democratic uh, consultant, who he lured in to be his top uh, st- strategy guy. And it turned out that the time was right, you know, for the people wanted enough of a change, enough of an outsider that, that I think, you know, just real briefly about, about Coakley, the two biggest complaints from Democratic insiders about her campaign last time around, the 2010 loss to Scott Brown, were not the, you know, the, the Kurt Schilling thing and the shaking hands in the cold. It was she didn't work hard enough and she didn't coordinate with people around the state in building the ground game. Both of those things she did extremely well from everything I could tell. She worked, 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 worked. You could really tell, especially after the primary. And she built and, and maintained, along with, with the various different factions, an incredibly effective uh, field operation that, that kept the race close when it looked like it might not be. I hate to say this, but it more or less unfolded just the way I thought it would. See, to me, this race is about um, politics returning to normal in Massachusetts. And the normal in Massachusetts, except for the eight years of Deval Patrick, is to have a Republican in the governor, uh, the governor's office, and the Democrats, you know, running the legislature. And it, 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 to me, maybe it's because I was, you know, younger when Weld came up and all. That, to me, is what Massachusetts politics is about. And this seemed to unfold according to plan. Yeah, and, and uh, my take is uh, on that normalcy is it's not so much about the Republican check. It's about the Beacon Hill outsider check. And, and you really, uh, when you look at the last four open races for governor, where we didn't have an acting or, you know, or regular uh, governor on the ballot. Who have they been won by? They've been won by basically attractive men from, a, from outside of the Beacon Hill establishment who had not held any significant public office before, who had a business demeanor, and who talked about reforming the culture of Beacon Hill more than, than anything else. And, and that's 
what Charlie Baker is, and he's very much in that mold of, uh, and I would put Deval Patrick uh, in the same mold, really. So my next question, obviously, is um, when she runs against him in 2018, <laughs> can Maura Healy beat Charlie Baker? Let's get an answer right here, Peter Kadzis. <laughs> well, I would have to say what I said about Martha Coakley. No sitting attorney general since 1853, is it? 1850 something has been elected governor. Now, maybe Maura Healy can, but Let's, I, I've had a number of Democrats. Last night, a woman who's very, very active behind the scenes, well, well but, you know, a hired gun, called me up to say, you know, in the GBH newsroom, what do you hear, what's the skinny and this and that? And within 30 seconds, she's touting Maura Healey for governor. <laughs> Let the woman be attorney general. I don't like your tone. <laughs> no, no, no. So my, my intentionally... You know, you know, you put him in a pub, and immediately he starts, like, you know, the, the ranting and fight, wanting to fight and, you know, putting up his dukes, right? Uh, it's so typical. So my intentionally idiotic question, um, I think actually has the germ of a legit question inside it, which is, who now... Uh, is the standard bearer for the Democratic Party in Massachusetts. David, I'm curious about who you think the sort of brighter lights of the Democratic establishment are now that Coakley didn't win. Well, there's a couple of different pieces to that, actually. When you talk about it, it, it's a different question to ask, who are the potential gubernatorial candidates to take on Baker? And there you've got a, a real impressive batch of sort of next-generation uh, polls uh, some of the mayors, obviously Joe Curtitone of Somerville stands out, uh, some, some of the lawmakers on Beacon Hill, although I really don't think that, that people can come from the legislature and get elected statewide anymore, but you look at a Ben Downing and Jen Flanagan and some others, you know, obviously in the Congress you've got people like Joe Kennedy III, Catherine Clark, uh, and, and then you've really got just around the state, you know, whether you look at someone like uh, an Ayanna Presley, people who have been in the Patrick administration, people who are coming up in the Walsh administration, people from, and, and people from outside, you know, outsider types who are, who are, you know, sort of the Alan Casey types, but, you know, perhaps more viable, you know. Uh, so then there's the whole debate about who's going to have power in the Democratic Party now that Deval Patrick leaves the void. And, and I think that's a real split question. I think people are looking towards Elizabeth Warren, but I think that there are a lot of different power brokers. I don't think she has yet the tentacles uh, of reach in this. She has the popularity among the Democratic base and the, the activists, but not the reach, you know, of like a Ted Kennedy or even a John Kerry who had people throughout the state who, you know, could be running things. A name that no one has mentioned is the mayor of Boston, Marty Walsh. Now, I, I, I realize that people say, especially since Kevin White didn't make it, well, the mayor of Boston, the mayor of Boston used to regularly, I mean, we're talking way back in history, you know, the curly days, and so, was regularly considered a candidate for um, for governor. And I don't know, Curtitone is, um, did I pronounce that properly? I believe so. Okay. No, I think it's actually... Curtitoni. Okay, Curtitoni. The mayor of Somerville, I, I think, is obvious. He had the good sense to step away this year. Somerville is a success story. I, I think Marty Walsh's potential. David, you have a terrific piece about the gateway cities in Boston Magazine, which when at that magic moment when it looked like Martha Coakley might pull it out, it was because of the gateway cities. You know, could there be... A, you know, a, a, a mayor there 
Um, and, uh, you know, it's interesting. A number of people have speculated, not knowing, about Kennedy, saying, you know, maybe he'll... And I've always said that, look, the Kennedys don't get their hands dirty with administration. He said, well, it's a new generation. Maybe they would. That's an intriguing idea. You guys will both remember that when Marty Walsh won election last year, it was this landmark achievement for labor or a signature achievement for organized labor. And there was a lot of talk of people had thought that organized labor was losing its political juice, but they've still got it. Just look at Marty Walsh's win. Um, It seems to me that uh, Martha Coakley's loss is to an extent uh, a repudiation of, or I shouldn't say repudiation. It, It is a loss for organized labor, which tried to mobilize on her behalf. It's a loss for Marty Walsh, who was telling people go out and vote for, you know, the Democratic ticket, starting with Martha Coakley. It is also a loss for Doug Rubin, the high-powered Democratic consultant who had a great run uh, highlighted by Governor Deval Patrick, but left Steve Grossman to work for Martha Coakley and couldn't get her elected. Uh, I'm wondering what you think of the implications for the people and groups I've just mentioned, and is there anyone else who we should say lost along with Martha Coakley? Well, uh, let me say, I think you're beating up on Martha too much, politely no, no, and, and not, analytically. No, no, let me, let, 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 me, let, let me tell you why I say that. Martha Coakley, if, if what I was reading on Twitter and the links that followed, this isn't something I knew, but Martha Coakley performed more strongly against Republican Charlie Baker than any Democratic candidate in recent memory, with the exception of Deval Patrick. She did a terrific job. Now, labor's a different issue. And uh, I'll tell you, what I didn't realize at the time is labor was so ginned up for Marty Walsh because he, he wasn't, was one of them. Yeah, he wasn't just pro-labor. He was a union official. And, you know, and God bless him. I mean, it was like Catholics voting for John Kennedy. I mean, uh, you know, African-Americans voting for Obama. Union members voted for Marty Walsh because, because. I also think that while it certainly was important uh, and, and very visible and, and loud, the role of labor in Marty Walsh's victory uh, has been overstated uh, to an extent. So, uh, and, and I think that it, it, it raised expectations for what uh, labor can do, and particularly the notion that labor can have that big a difference in a statewide high-profile race. You know, a governor's race is really something where people get to know that they're really voting on the individuals. But, you know, this does come both for labor and for Doug Rubin, who you mentioned, uh, right on the heels of a very embarrassing loss with Warren Tolman uh, in the attorney general's race uh, in the primary. So, so there certainly will be questions asked about that. But uh, first of all, I think labor did an excellent job of organizing and working with the Coakley team, the, the progressives who they disagreed with on a lot of key things, including the, the ballot question on casinos and the rest of the sort of coordinated campaign of the Democrats. Labor was really, really key and really very important from my understanding and my watching in, in keeping this so close. And, and it's interesting to me, I really expected that this kind of a loss would very quickly devolve into you know the the circular firing squad among the Democrats, and I'm not so sure that from people I've talked to, obviously it's you know it's it's early. We'll see, but uh, I'm not quite so sure that it is to the extent that I might have expected. 
on Tuesday night, that's what that was all about. When it looked like the race might be really close, Martha Coakley decided not to concede. That's not without precedent. I mean, that was very much how Richard Nixon acted in the 1960 race with John Kennedy. Granted, that's a long time ago and under different circumstances, but she handled that very well. And once it was clear that she wasn't gonna win, they moved on. But it was also important because it showed that she was tough, she comes out of it with her reputation intact, um, and it also it, it created a unity with among the Democrats that no one wanted to diss each other. That's very unusual in Massachusetts. I actually did not like the way that she handled that. I thought that uh, it, it just was not that big a deal for her to to wait for another hour for those returns to come in, especially because they clearly knew. I mean, those of us who did not have the kind of data that they had in their war room uh, knew that the outstanding votes were gonna trend the other way. Uh, and I can certainly understand not wanting to concede at that point, but the idea that at 1130 or whatever it was, uh, that you've shut it down. But I'll tell you the, the context for that that I think is fascinating. Martha Coakley and a lot of the people who were on that, that campaign, who were in the room, you know, while those decisions were being made at 11.30, were in Copley Square, in, the, in or around the room in 2004, when John Kerry faced the question of, of whether to concede that night and decided, you know, to, to send uh, John Edwards out, I believe, to talk to the crowd, just as, uh, as Martha Coakley did. And it was a huge, you know, they had thought that they were going to win, and then suddenly there were, and, and there were all kinds of questions about Ohio and everything. And, and that came, of course, in the context of 2000 Bush v. Gore. So, so they knew, and especially, you know, Coakley as an attorney, but also just from the PR uh, side of things, that there are real consequences to conceding a race that you think you even might challenge. Martha Coakley not conceding last night and Charlie Baker giving what I thought was a really terrific speech after she did not concede was maybe the best possible way he could start off his time as governor-elect. He said she wasn't going to concede. You know, there were some yahoos in his audience who started booing, yeah. and he was able to shout them down and say, no, no, you know, she has every right not to concede. You know, we need to make sure every vote's counted. I really just thought it let him start off looking like the good guy in a way that, you know, maybe there aren't big-time implications, but... It was a nice note for him to begin on. I would agree, yeah. All right, what other races or outcomes, locally or nationally, David and Peter, um, did you think were important last night? Well, I'd go to Rhode Island, and not just because it's colorful, but the fact that Buddy Cianci lost. Providence was a city on the brink of bankruptcy. The, the citizenry did the right thing, elected a bunch of uh, responsible uh, people, and it's great, even though Buddy's an old friend of mine, it is, that's very significant. They chose life, the, the citizens of Providence chose life over death. And what it was, it was a combination of um, Hispanic and Latino voters and uh, east side academics and affluent people. Uh, really, really interesting governor's races throughout New England uh, ended up, the one that, that I thought was, was a gimme 
was Vermont. That turns out to be, you know, possibly heading into recount for uh, Peter Schumlin. Maine was all over the place and ends up with uh, LePage, the Republican, you know, managing somehow to, to eke out a re-election. The, the Chris Christie of the Northeast. <laughs> and uh, uh, one, uh, one other thing uh, I'll, I'll point to that people should keep an eye on uh, in the national uh, races that, that won't get a lot of attention, but, but uh, we should be paying attention locally. Uh, Louise Slaughter, the congresswoman from upstate New York, uh, is in a shocking, out of nowhere, too close to call uh, re-election. And, you know, why do we care about a, a congresswoman from upstate New York? If she loses, Jim McGovern of Worcester becomes the ranking Democrat on the House Rules Committee, which is an enormously huge, huge post. Even though they're in the minority, it's huge. And, of course, what, what amazes me is none of us have mentioned, myself included, Scott Brown incredibly tight race, but still losing to Gene Shaheen. Now, again, like Massachusetts, this played out the way I thought it would. My wife's from New Hampshire. We have family up there. However, I never in a million years thought it would be as close as it was. Does he does he make some sort of comeback down the road? I thought he was done after he lost to Elizabeth he, Warren. I was gonna, wrong. No, I hear he's going to move to Vermont and go into artisanal cheese making. I, I would never count Scott Brown out for almost anything. He's, a, he's just a very, very good politician. Uh, and and I, I'll just throw out uh, one other observation, because uh, we haven't mentioned Seth Moulton. And, and I'll just make, make an observation uh, that you think back just a few years, really just four, five years ago, that the Massachusetts congressional delegation had a very stale, musty feel to it. Over and and Barney Frank, you know, as great as as I, as I like a lot of these guys, you know, Delahunt and, and and all of a sudden you've got you've got Joe Kennedy the third, you've got Catherine Clark, you've got Seth Moulton. It's a very different feel to that congressional delegation now. I think we got to move on here because David, you're part of this event which is slowly developing behind us, right? This it, yeah. mass, I'm going to get it wrong. It's a Mass Inc. event, right? Masterless, which everyone should subscribe to. It's uh, it's a daily, you know. Summary of uh, things. In, in I think of it as the news you need to know, but with a wry, off kilter sense of humor. Is that fair? It, it, Look who's here. It is Mike Dean of Masterless. We should. We should. With a frosty beverage. Yeah. Hey, hey what's up? Uh, yeah, I'm here with my Guinness. I got a, a question for you, Mike. I, I was throwing this out on Twitter yesterday. David and I were kicking around with various people. I don't think you weighed in, but. To what extent do you think this election may have been, even in part, a repudiation of Governor Deval Patrick? He refused to talk about those sort of issues today when he was doing the transition meeting with Charlie Baker. Um, what's your take on that? Um, I, I think it's undeniable that, at least in some voters' minds, that is what they were doing. They see the problems at the Department of Children and Families. They see problems with DTA, which have been mostly turned around, problems with the connector, problems with, with a lot of the big term two initiatives the Patrick administration has taken on. And, you know, you can't help but say that that had a big influence on how people voted, and they voted Republican. I, I have another question for you, Mike. Uh, did you enter the Scrums Prediction Challenge? Yes. Yes, you did. Yes. Okay. I guess I didn't win. Winner. Uh, no, no, no. That no winner has not been named. I don't believe. But but we're uh, still um, we're still crunching the numbers. We're not really good at math. 
right. here oh, no, at no, the, the scrub. The truth, the truth is the fancy part of WGBH took over crunching the numbers, oh. and all the fancy pants aren't done yet. Last time it was done with us taking our shoes off in an abacus, and it was ready in time. <laughs> are, are you telling me this is going to be a Nova special on who, who, won, who won the math? It's actually going to be a, a Downton Abbey-themed event <laughs> in which... Famous fictitious Brits from early in the 20th century somehow distribute when, that info. Yeah. When the Dowager Countess announces the winner, I'll be on the edge of my seat. It's interesting because I, I believe that coming up next is is the Downton Abbey prediction challenge. <laughs> All right. So our listeners now know that the uh, results have not yet been tabulated. David, before I wrap up here, can you tell our listeners who may not know, most of them probably do, but you're leaving the Boston area after how many years? I have been in the Boston area since 1985. My wife and I are moving to Richmond, Virginia. Uh, I will still have a presence uh, here. Looks like I will have a presence on WGBH in particular, but I will not be, my physical presence here uh, on, in the scrum might be uh, greatly reduced. But we, we should also note, for listeners who might be curious, that you are moving because your wife got a really good job down in Richmond. Right? Do you mean like as opposed to like because Charlie Baker won, I have to leave? Is that or because Marty Walsh kicked me out? Or, <laughs> Marty Walsh dumped a bucket of ice water on me. I think that was enough to, for him. You know, maybe maybe if Charlie Baker dumps some ice water on me, then he then I can stay. I don't know. We'll see. Uh, Wait a minute. Over there, I see TV's John Keller, famous political analyst, commentator, reporter. John, you, you look perplexed. Well, I knew I was coming to a sketchy part of town, but I didn't think I'd run into riffraff like this. Luckily, I'm packing, so it's all right. All right, can we ask you for your uh, quick take on last night's outcome, the whole Coakley didn't concede and then she conceded. Were you surprised, by the way, that the governor's race came to fruition? Well, the specifics of the, of the failure to concede were weird, just like a lot of the Coakley campaign, with all due respect, okay? Um, I, I, no, I guess I can't say I was all that surprised. Uh, I was more surprised by the polling that showed Baker pulling out to this huge lead. That struck me as a little bit odd. I mean, this is Massachusetts, after all. Uh, but no, the outcome didn't really surprise me. I mean, you look at the ballot questions, and clearly voters were upset and worried about the pocketbook and the cost of living. And usually when voters around here get worked up into that kind of a mood, that's the fertile ground for a Republican, the lone Republican to break through. You mentioned a lot of parts of the Coakley campaign being weird. Just briefly, what are you talking about? Well, I guess you have to start with the candidate. Again, with all due respect, I'm not a, I'm far from a Coakley hater. I'm a lot of respect for her and always had good dealings with her over the years, but for instance, at her belated concession remarks today at her headquarters, she teared up when she started talking about, she mentioned that she had gone to Williams, but that her mother had never had the opportunity to go to college, and she kind of choked up, but then segued from that into an exhortation to the young women on her campaign to not be dissuaded by defeat from getting involved themselves. Arguably, for one of the most eloquent moments we've seen from Martha Coakley all great. year, yeah. I had never, maybe I missed it, but I had never heard her mention the fact that her mother 
had wanted to go to college and was denied that opportunity. And what could be a more universal conversation starter than talking about how your parents sacrificed so you could have opportunity, and that leads you to talk about what you'd like to, the opportunities you'd like to see the next generation have. And next thing you know, you're off and running on a riff that is solid gold for a Democratic candidate in Massachusetts or anywhere else. And I was just surprised that I never heard her talk about that before. She showed more emotion in that moment than she did in her own TV ad talking about her brother's unfortunate passing. Go figure. It's just odd. And I don't say that derogatorily, but it's just odd. John, those are great insights, better than anything that preceded your arrival here. And we should probably wrap up because the good people uh, of and pertaining to the Master List have an event to do. Before we do wrap up, however, a sincere thank you to everyone who listened to the Scrum Podcast during election season. We, including you, David Bernstein, talking out of school, had a fun time making this podcast. And we hope you had as much fun listening to it. We have some fresh ideas up our collective sleeve for what we're going to do in the future, so please stick with us. Keep on listening. David, good luck in Richmond. Thank you, sir. And thank you to, to you for hosting the Scrum and for all the, the GBH. And, and our fabulous producer, Abby, is uh, who, uh, who edits out my stupid bits, or some of my, my stupidest bits. Uh, and Peter Kadzis, obviously, I'll see you each and every day for the foreseeable future. Thanks for being here as always. Glad to be here. See you tomorrow. David, I'll see you tomorrow, too. If you enjoy listening to the Scrum Podcast, please subscribe to it in iTunes. You can also find more of us on our blog. That's blogs.wgbh.org scrum. The Scrum team includes WGBHnews.org senior editor Peter Kadzis, WGBH political analyst David Bernstein, who is staying with us in a role to be determined, and producer Abby Ruzica. We also have help from web producer Brendan Lynch. I'm Adam Riley. The Scrum is a production of WGBH News.